Hi, and welcome to Things of Interest. I'm Sophia Fritz. And I'm Serene Chen. And this week, we're going to be talking about burnout and stress and productivity. Because fundamentally, there is a huge pressure on everyone everywhere in the world to always be productive. Like, there's a huge amount of guilt associated with doing nothing or indeed just like creating things that aren't seen as being inherently productive. Mm. Um, I know on this podcast we've definitely been approached by people who are like do you want to make money with your podcast and we've had to say well that's not why we do it we do Mm. it because we love it and I have a lot of things like that in my life but it was really difficult to get over that first hump of like guilt of doing something that not only wasn't productive but also like wouldn't facilitate like my future skill set in any way um wouldn't make me a better worker in this capitalist nightmare we live in in any way (laughs) shape or form um, and Serena's le- recently written a really good piece about this. And so it seemed like a good time to talk about burnout in this episode. So Serena, do you just want to like give us a yarn about what led you to writing a whole piece on burnout and recovering from? So I have been in a sad rut <laughs> Um ever since the crash at shooting. And I think um, our last episode, we, we talked about cynicism and sadness and all of that great stuff. And then a few weeks into that, I got a really, really bad flu. And um, my body didn't clear the infection fast enough. So I got a lung infection after I got the flu. It was like a one-two hit. I was a zombie just in bed for about two weeks and then still a bit zombie-ish for about a week later and I've still got a bit of a cough now but I'm pretty much better now and so for a long time I was not quote-unquote productive I couldn't be and at the same time my good friend Raquel she recommended me this book called Doing Nothing uh, Resisting the Attention of Economy by Jenny O'Dell and it's it's a really good book and I would I would recommend it highly Um, it's kind of uh, poetically spiritual in a way. It is very personal to the author herself, but I think it's worth reading. And it's pretty much all about the feelings of anxiety and guilt that comes with, especially as someone who like makes things, all that anxiety that comes with not making things and not creating anything new. And so you know, all of this kind of coincided at the same time as me having, like, not being physically able to do anything. So I was like, okay, I'm going to, like, legitimately give this doing nothing thing a try. Because before I was wanting to do things and I was just, I just couldn't, I just couldn't do things. Um, And by doing things, I mean, like, working on my own projects, um, writing, making stuff, doing the things that I usually enjoy doing not necessarily work stuff because I I think I've I've worked really hard and I've I think I've done really well at compartmentalizing my work life and the projects that I work on in my personal life but anyway so I in earnest tried to do nothing and tried to enjoy the world around me and for the first week it was really good it was really restorative 
and I think there's like different ways of doing nothing. Um, I found that like I mainlined a whole series on Netflix called The Society, which I enjoyed. It was like teen trash, but like mildly intelligent teen trash, but still teen trash. I loved it. It was good. Um, but like I found that the mainlining Netflix thing was not as restorative as just like lying on the ground in my living room and staring into the ceiling. <laughs> um, so like that was good and like taking the time to notice things when you're not doing anything, um, to notice the surroundings around you, that was, it was good. Like in our wildly busy modern world it's easy to, to forget to observe the world around you. But in about week two, I still couldn't do anything and I still wasn't doing anything. But I got to the point where it's like, actually, I'm bored out of my mind <laughs> and I need to do something. But when I do do stuff, it's anxiety inducing. It's like whenever I open up my laptop to write something, I can't help but to be flooded with the anxiety around like what if my writing is shit what if I'm just adding noise into a world already full of noise what if I'm wasting people's time and I just like can't get through it so I thought to myself what why why like if if I'm trying to do stuff I'm paralyzed by anxiety but if I'm not doing stuff I'm like frustrated by boredom mm. And what this kind of anxiety-boredom dichotomy reminded me of is uh, this book called Flow by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. And in uh, one of the earlier chapters, he breaks down the, the components of the flow state. Now, if you're not aware already, the flow state is this kind of psychological state that some people can get into when they're a hundred percent fully engrossed in the thing that they're doing so much so that the like they lose their sense of time they lose their sense of um place in the world they're so engrossed in what they're doing that the thing that they're doing is their entire world at that time and it often evokes like a real kind of euphoria mm -hmm. um and I'm sure, like, a lot of us have experienced this before. It doesn't have to be a productive task. Like, sometimes you can experience flow when you're, I don't know, doing anything, really. Like, doing a hobby that you really enjoy. Playing a game. Sometimes people experience flow when they're playing a game. Um, so that's what this book was about. And in one of the earlier chapters in the book, he compared the magnitude of the challenge that you're faced with and your skill level and he was talking about how like you need to balance the magnitude of the challenge with your skill level to be in the right place for flow if your challenge is too high compared to your skill you get a lot of anxiety if your challenge is too low compared to your skill you get a lot of boredom and so it reminded me a lot of this um of of the book and so i i kind of dug the book up again and had a reread through that chapter. And in that chapter, he also describes the things that, um, the internal things that block flow, the things that will stop flow in its tracks. And these two things were self consciousness and self centeredness. 
So self-consciousness is when you're, you're so conscious and you're so obsessed with how other people see you that you get this ridiculous, you get this anxiety and stress around like how I am perceived to the rest of the world. Mm. And self-centeredness is focusing and obsessing so much on the value of every single action and interaction so that everything becomes joyless. Like I compare it with like going to a networking event Mm. and talking to someone because you know you should be talking to them rather than talking to someone because you're genuinely interested in them as a human being. Yeah. And so when you get too much self-centeredness, you you just, like, it sucks the joy out of everything because everything is a means to an end. Everything is transactional. Hmm. And I think this is when, like, something clicked in my brain because the world that we live in right now compels us to be self-conscious and self-centered. Like, we live in this world that's, our, our social like our social lives have been almost wholly replaced by social media this gigantic interconnected global network where anyone and everyone in the world can judge us by the tiniest out of context bits of writing and we're obsessing and like we're incentivized to obsess over likes and retweets and comments and shares and all that crap at the same time we're living in this late capitalist hellscape (laughs) that compels us to obsess over value that compels us to be selfish and self-centered and to kind of be uh unforgiving in our drive towards some kind of career goal question mark you know what i mean like (laughs) yeah yeah so it suddenly made a lot of sense to me why I was feeling what I was feeling, why I was flip-flopping between anxiety and boredom. Yeah. And so it was like, oh, holy shit. I suddenly realized that, like, when I sit down to write something and all these thoughts of, like, oh, crap, like, what if no one cares? What if, uh, what if everyone thinks this is shit? I suddenly realized that I don't actually care. I don't care what other people think that's not why I write that's not why I make things that's not why I do any of what I do like I do these things because I genuinely enjoy them I get joy out of the act of doing them out of the the experience of having an idea in my brain in my mushy head tissue and putting work in and then seeing that idea become real Mm. that's where I get my joy from. And I had forgotten that. I had that beaten out of me by the world around me and the the incentives and the expectations of the systems that I live in. And so that realization was was crucial to me because after that, I started, I started re-engaging with the things that I once loved doing. How I once did them which was I I focused on the actual activity itself I focused on the the making of the things itself and and I realized that I just didn't care about all of these things that I've been trained to care about for the last few years and suddenly it was like oh my god I really I actually really enjoy doing things not because it's 
you know, quote-unquote productive, not because it'll earn me anything, because those are the exact kinds of things that give me anxiety and, you know, drive me to joylessness. But because I, I inherently like doing things, and it it makes me think a lot about how the world we live in expects us to to be productive and to do things and to do things in such a way so that, you know, it creates value or something. Even freaking I mean, we've been talking about this on the podcast before, even hobbies, things like making music, dancing, drawing. It's so hard for us these days to, to take up a hobby without thinking I have to be good at this instead of oh, just yeah. saying <laughs> that's my curse <laughs> yeah instead of just saying like we're going to to run and dance and draw and sing because that's just what humans do like the birds fly and the bees buzz and that's just what we do you know it's mm. a natural thing that brings us joy and that's just being driven and grinded out of us like by a world that tells us that if you're not good at something, if you're not providing value, if not if you're not being productive, then you're worthless. Mm. And that's just not true. And so this is kind of like my journey over the last two months, I guess, mm. of like burning out and then rediscovering doing nothing and then rediscovering doing things. And that's that was a long rant, sorry. <laughs> And now here we are. <laughs> That's really good, actually. No, because I, I kind of come at it from the other perspective where it's like everything you do mm. has value and that value might turn out to be. So I don't I don't think I've told the story on the podcast before. I've told it at a few um, events where I've spoken. But mm. basically, have I, have I ever told you about how makeouts ended up with my, me getting a PhD position? Mm, no. Yeah, if you have to pause, you haven't heard that story. <laughs> um, <laughs> so basically when I was in first year, I was at a party and I made out with this wonderful young woman with green hair and I was just like, she's the coolest thing I've ever met. Like, I love kissing her. It's so good. I forgot her name. Um, <laughs> she like she left the party and someone was like what was her name again Sophia I was like uh oh <laughs> shut up we were doing other things with our mouths okay no <laughs> um, and then someone else was like Sophia she's married no. um, it's an open relationship mm. um, but I was just like oh my god there's so much going on here I can't so I like and it was, it was Dunedin, so I had to, like, actively avoid her for about three months because I was just, like, can't bump into her, don't know her name. Uh. Eventually bumped into her on the street, and she was like, oh, you're really – do you want to grab a coffee? Like, let's hang out. And, like, I think 30 minutes into it, she was just like, you forgot my name, didn't you? And I'm like, <laughs> yep. And she's like, it's Fiona, it's fine. Um, and we ended up hanging out a bunch, and one of the people who she flattered with was doing – and on his year and proceeded on to do a PhD um, in the lab that I ended up getting a studentship in. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons that I got an interview and then the studentship was I spent time talking to this woman and she talked to her supervisor and was like, this like second year, this first year, second year is one of the smartest people 
I've met and it's terrifying and you should definitely have her in your lab. <laughs> um, and so I got an interview and then after the interview, my honours, my not then, but would be honours supervisor was like, I love your passion. And I'm like, I don't know anything yet. I'm a second year. <laughs> <laughs> and I got a studentship and then another studentship. Um, and then I ended up doing my honours year in that lab. And throughout that process, you know, like, I, I guess, impressed my honours supervisor enough that when it came to, like, sort of the few months before the end of my honours year, and I was like, look, I've loved working here, but I need to, like, go and do my PhD somewhere else. And mm-hmm. it was, like, it was a super awkward conversation because we both came into it being like, I love you, but you need to leave. <laughs> Um, and as soon as we figured out we were both on the same page it was like oh oh thank god (laughs) oh my god okay yeah let's do this (laughs) um and my phd supervisor set me up with an interview uh sorry my honor supervisor set me up with an interview with my phd supervisor and i guess like really bigged me up uh essentially (laughs) like Mm -hmm. which i i really appreciate um and i used to be like really uh not flattered almost like anxious about until I had a conversation with another lecturer and he would be like look Stephen wouldn't do that if he didn't believe in you like clearly he's seen something and you don't get to tell him he's wrong about that um and that was really helpful uh and yeah and then I ended up getting my PhD in this lab and all of that happened because I made out with a girl in first year because funny yeah well like if i hadn't i wouldn't have met um the woman who like got me in touch with the person who became my honor supervisor who got me in touch with my phd supervisor wouldn't have moved to melbourne like none of that would have happened um Mm. and that's a story i told like at an event where we were sort of talking to undergraduates about networking and i was like you shouldn't be stressed about networking and you shouldn't see networking events as being like the be all and end all of your careers because they're Mm. not you know, like, making out with someone at a party might be. And you don't know that until, like, fucking five years later. Networking just, like, the idea of it stresses me out so much that I just now approach it completely, like, I'm not going to focus on networking at all. I'm just going to find people that I actually enjoy talking to because I don't know how these things work and I can't oh. I can't deal with, like... That- that thinking. is meant to be how that works, right? Like, right. the most successful networking you'll do is when you go in to make friends. Mm. Because when you have, like, that personal connection with someone, like, oh, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say some corporate bullshit. Um, I apologize in advance. But basically, <laughs> like, so I'm a consultant right now, and consulting particularly, but really all work relationships you have are built on trust. And if people like you as a person, they're more willing to trust you. And so, actually, networking is, like, the most successful when you're, like, man, I need some more buddies. Like, I'm going to go make some friends. Because, like, those are people – so, firstly, those are people who will trust you much more readily. But they're also people who will think about you when they're, like, oh, dang, like, I need someone who's a baller graphic designer. Oh, I met Serena at that networking event. She was pretty cool. I wouldn't mind working with her. Mm. Um, I mean, that's also how, like, all nepotism works, right? But, like (laughs) – uh, we we need to use that to our advantage, and so networking events. Um, but yeah, like I I get very bewildered, and I think it might be a bit of a big city thing because in Otago everyone knows everyone. Yeah. Um, but like I get very bewildered by how nervous people get about networking events. And it's just like you know, like 
either you're going to see these people again or you're not. And if you fuck up in front of them, like, you've been memorable. There's that. Um, like, I, the, the Consul General to Victoria, South Australia and New South Wales, I told that making out story on stage the first night I met him. He has not forgotten me. <laughs> he has, in fact, invited me into a young leaders program. And I'm just like, eh, it was the making out story, yeah, Chris? And he was like, yeah, sure, but also you're brilliant. I'm like, it's the making out story, Chris. <laughs> I think it was that. Um, and so we have this idea of, like, I think we separate our personal lives and our work lives almost Hmm. I'm going to put a lot of caveats at the end of this almost too much. And I don't mean that in the sense that like we take our work home, like everyone does that and you fucking shouldn't. Like if you get paid for 7.5 hours, work for those hours and then leave. We don't need capitalism eating more people, honestly. Um, But when it comes to things like work events and networking events, like you can just be yourself Mm. and the people who like that, like will be, much more willing to pay you and hire you and have you around. And that is what will get you a job. Like humans are really good at telling when someone else is being a bit of a faker. Mm. Um, that's why actors get paid so much. Uh, but, and so like being fake at networking events or at work or like, and there's like, there's a bunch of studies when it comes to like um, being out at work, like people who aren't out at work tend to be less happy and less productive. And that's just, like, one of the examples of, like, bringing your whole self to work, which is, like, such a fucking buzz phrase. Um, (laughs) Yeah. But genuinely, like, the best thing you can do if you're interested in, like, your career or your personal life or your health is to approach every networking event and be like, I want some friends. I'm going to make some friends. Well, not even that, because, like, that kind of gives me anxiety as well. Kind of approach it just, like, there are going to be some interesting people in this room and I want to find them and I want to hear about their shit like yeah like I want to I want to hear about what makes these people tick what they're passionate about what they you know for every single person there's some topic out there that when they start talking about it you can see their eyes light up mm. and their entire body comes to life and I love that. I love that so much. I love seeing that. And so, like, I just, I just want to find what that thing is for everyone that I'm talking to. Cause that's just, I don't know. It just makes me happy. It's like, it's like, that's the kind of shit that makes life worth living. That's you so know? wholesome. I go and I find queer women and I tell them to live their best lives. Yes. I'm like, hello, you have short hair and it's dyed. What's up? Let's talk. <laughs> What do you need for your career? What can I do for you? Let's figure it out. <laughs> I don't know. People people get so nervous because I think they see the stakes as being really high as well. Mm. It's just like, honestly, like, if you're bad at talking to someone, they usually don't remember. <laughs> and probably the one big thing is, like, have a decent handshake. Because, like, I have, like, a, like, when I think about bad handshakes I've had, I perfectly remember the person and also how it felt in my hand. Um... So, yeah, if if you have to go to a handshake seminar, like very Amy Santiago, but if you do, like, <laughs> do. Handshakes are a really big thing. <laughs> God, I hate a bad handshake. <laughs> also, 
if you if you're worried about your handshake it's probably fine honestly like people who have like really bad handshakes tend not to think that they have bad handshakes and they also tend to be white men so you know i've had a lot of handshakes where the dude is like crushing my hand and it's really hard for me in that kind of situation to like go from friendly to like adversarial to go from like it's nice to meet you to like oh you want to fight <laughs> do you know what i mean <laughs> Like, when, like, a, when like, a guy, like, squeezes your hand, like, instead of just, like, a good, you know, firm squeeze, but, like, crushing, yeah. it's like, we, you and me, man, we can go outside right now. <laughs> I usually try and make a joke about it. Just like, oh, man, like, I don't, I, I can't, I can't even write anymore, man. Like, what did you do here? And then you can, like, get <laughs> self-conscious about it. Um, no, I had a really bad handshake where the guy's hand was, like, really cold, and he grabbed my hand too hard and it's like I could like feel all of the knobs in his hand and it was just like it was a bad experience. And it just it sucks. It's so bad. Oh. But also like when I have really good handshakes, I like will try and comment on them and I'll be like, dang, that was a great handshake. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you for this experience we've just had together. It was excellent. <laughs> um I've had like a really busy life um (laughs) month or so with work Mm. and so i've definitely been finding that i will get home and i will lie on the couch and i will put on netflix usually like i'll go i'll go via the gym but then i'll like just put on the lie on the couch and put on netflix i watched all of white gold recently Mm -hmm. um which is a comedy about a double glazing salesman in the 80s starring chuck from gossip girl oh wild yeah yeah it's a lot it's a lot of things um (laughs) it's got a baller soundtrack as well they must have paid like a mint for the rights to all of those Mm. um but i don't know like i haven't felt guilty necessarily about that but i think i've been aware that it's not like the most healthy thing i could be doing Mm. i mean like i equally in the last month like i've seen my physio my gp and my psych (laughs) so i feel like painfully aware of what is like healthy and what is not healthy for me Mm -hmm. i think like that's that's probably where i approach a lot of my creative activities and a lot of my quote-unquote productivity is being like am i doing something that's healthy for me and that's not necessarily like self-care because like sometimes yeah you need a bubble bath and a glass of wine Mm. but sometimes like the best possible thing you can do for your mental health is to empty the fucking dishwasher and so i don't know do you think that approach would be more useful to sort of go in thinking about things not in their like value in an Mm. esoteric way but more like what like whether it is helpful for you like whether it's doing something good for your health if like if you do something you enjoy that's like positive for you healthily like from Mm. a healthy perspective yeah yeah no absolutely my my dad used to say like if everything everything that you experience in your life everything that you can do depends on your mental and physical health and if your mental and physical health wane then, like, you can't do shit, right? And, like, this was... He told me this when I was in high school and I would, like, take on too much extracurricular stuff and I'd have, like, too many projects going on and I'd be, like, part of the choir and the orchestra and I'd, like, have, like, three art projects going on and, like, doing filming stuff and... and, God, that's a mood. Yeah. I think I've... It still sounds like me, but... um, Unless... I mean, okay, yeah, it's still me. But anyway... And I would be like getting sick and I would, I would never sleep. 
it was actually quite a problem. I, I wouldn't sleep. I would sleep for like two, three hours a night kind of thing. Christ, that's um, so unhealthy. Yeah, it, it was it was actually it got really bad. Um, oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> I'm getting like anxiety hearing about this. Yeah, I think I mean, I have some other issues going on with that kind of stuff, but my dad I he was like look, cuz he understood that all the all the shit that I did, that stuff gave me joy. And mm. that stuff was good. I, I really enjoyed doing those things. Um, so he understood that, like, I couldn't, like, that was my focus. That was what I wanted. And I couldn't just, like, not do things. So he was like, look, you want to you wanna do all these things, and that's great. But if you don't focus on your health first, then you can't do anything. Because I guess, like, at the time it was like, I wasn't sleeping because I wanted to do stuff. And... I mean, there's there's another layer to this in that, like, I was just obsessively, uh, I'm not sure if I want to get into this, but, like, I, I thought about death a lot, and I still do, but, like, not as obsessively as I, as I did as a child and teen. I would obsess over it, just, like, replaying in my mind um, just the idea of death and what it would be like to die and what what it all means to to have this kind of limited time, um, being conscious and being, you know, having very little control, but having some control of, of this flesh bag and thinking a lot about like the, the small imprint that I'm going to leave on the world and how, how I can make it. So it's a, it's a net positive, just obsessing, 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 obsessing over death which contributed a lot to why I didn't sleep because I felt that like sleep was so close to death that I just I don't know I it was an obsession I I don't quite understand I'm only like right now starting to understand it but yeah I saw it as like if I'm sleeping then I'm not doing so I'm not like being productive <laughs> like I'm not you know adding some value into the world I'm not doing shit and so the way that my dad tried to convince me was just like, you know, you want to do stuff, but you have to understand that if you don't, if you're not healthy, you can't do anything. So you need to focus on your health first, health first. And then, and then from then on, you can decide, like, if you want to do stuff, if you don't want to do stuff, if you like, whatever it is, but you have to be, you have to focus on health first. Mm. And, and I thought that was a really good way of describing it to me to me like this obsessive kid who just didn't want to sleep mm. yeah i mean like the thing i i talk to well okay two thoughts here mm. firstly like whenever i'm like extremely depressed and still trying to do lots of things because like the way i do things um is very sort of like i either do a lot because it brings me joy and it puts a lot of meaning in my life that's good mm. that's healthy or I do things to fill some kind of hole that exists inside of me and that's when it starts getting unhealthy and that's mm. when I start taking on too much um and the way a friend sort of described it to me is he was just like what the fuck are you gonna do if you just like burn out and can't do anything anymore and I'm like that's very fair <laughs> <laughs> I will in fact be useless if that happens to me <laughs> but that's kind of like a perversion in itself right that yeah. like we're we're so obsessed with doing stuff 
that the only way to get us to rest is to say, well, you can't do more stuff if you don't rest. Like, <laughs> that's a perversion in itself. Oh, very accurate. I think he was, like, trying to talk to me in, like, um, the kind of language I was using. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm saying, like, us yeah. two. Like, we're, we're yeah. the ones that are, oh, absolutely. That are fucked up, yeah. Yeah, yeah, He's doing sure. great. <laughs> but I think about, like, health a lot of the time in the sense of, like, the four pillars of Haora. Mm. Whereas, like, particularly living in Australia, like, a lot of people don't. Like, they've got no context of something like people are more aware of mental and emotional well-being than they used to be. Um, mm-hmm. But, like, the social health, like, people have no fucking yeah. clue about that. <laughs> yeah. So true. And even, like, this idea of, like, spiritual well-being in the absence of, like, a defined religion. Like, my, my spiritual well-being is not as important as it should be uh, to me. But that's just kind of like, you know, that's – I'm all framing it around, like, my, mor- my moral and ethical standards and, like, whether I'm delivering on those. And this was actually something I talked mm-hmm. a bit with my psych about in my last appointment because um, I was like, I feel worried that I'm not – like, I didn't really get involved with the Australian election. I feel worried that I'm not, like, realizing my personal beliefs. Like, I'm not actually acting on them. Mm. And she was like, well, from everything you've told me, you absolutely are. Like, and she mm-hmm. pointed to, like, a couple of things I did. And she was like, these are completely in line with, like, your personal beliefs and values. And so you are. You're just doing it on a different scale. And I think, like, unless you have, like, you know, and this is the thing we say a lot on this podcast, everyone should do therapy. But unless <laughs> you're kind of, like, having that discussion with a therapist in Australia, like, people just aren't conscious of like you know the four pillars of Hora um and how they all kind of like have to be there and Mm. that's that can be kind of stressful (laughs) (laughs) particularly when you're talking to someone who's like a fucking adult and you have to be like mate mate (laughs) how how like you know you're really stressed like clearly that's like your mental and emotional health is not doing super well where is that coming from is that like purely like a problem in that like pillar of Hawara or is it like a problem in one of the others is causing the stress um and, like I definitely I can find it very frustrating so there are some people who are like much older than me who aren't condescending about it basically um <laughs> and I'm very willing to talk to those people on sort of like a level or like in a sort of like more caring and looking after kind of perspective but when people like make the point and are condescending about like their age and their greater experience or whether they're like you know more advanced than me and whatever Mm. um I get very frustrated when I have to like explain basic life shit to them um I think that's more like a reflection on like our social relationship than anything else (laughs) um but I can find it like really annoying to have to be like hey what the fuck like Mm. look after yourself you absolute dick (laughs) (laughs) yeah it reminds me a lot of like unhealthy cultural habits Mm. like flexing over how little sleep you got or yeah yeah my entire high school what (laughs) (laughs) yeah or like flexing over like how many energy drinks you had this morning or like I don't know it it reminds me a lot of first year of uni because I was in a hall full of um first year health science students all going for med and so there was a lot of that going around like flexing over how many hours you studied um like 
how sleep deprived you are and like all of these really really unhealthy shit it's yeah not I good. was at the time I didn't necessarily like enjoy it a lot mm. I was very glad I went to a party hall <laughs> <laughs> like in hindsight there was just like none of that bullshit yeah wait where were you <laughs> I went to Arana oh wait Arana isn't a party hall uh yeah it was <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was I thought Arana was like stu- uh, I thought Arana was basically Carrington except bigger no Arana was work hard play hard Oh. Um, so it was, Great. uh, <laughs> facts about Arana that they told me when I lived there. Sorry yeah. to everyone who listens to our podcast. <laughs> um, so it's the most competitive hall. Mm. Um, but that means that the people who get in, like they select for well-roundedness rather than like academic abilities. Um, so you get like a lot of people who are like head boys and head girls. Mm. Um, <laughs> and people like me, whose dad went to Arana. And so I was like, what's up nerds? <laughs> <laughs> Um, and so like, yeah, and there were, there were a lot of people who did that as well. There, so there, um, there are people on my floor whose like older siblings went to Arana or like cousins went to Arana and so they got in. Um, right. and so it's like that people who tended to be like quite academically gifted, um, didn't necessarily study like a lot, like studied a bit, but not heaps. Mm. Um, and, uh, got real wasted, which for me, not drinking in my first year was, uh, nothing I was interested in. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but also like my first year was a mess for a number of reasons. Like I was anemic a lot. And so I was Mm. just like asleep for most of the year more than Mm. anything. (laughs) Um, but it like, it turned out okay. And like in hindsight, absolutely. I'm so glad that I lived there rather than like St. Margaret's. Oh my God. Um, I I can't imagine. I can't imagine living at St. Margaret's. I'd be so stressed. So Margaret's for everyone listening to this podcast. He's just like, what the fuck are these people talking about? Um, (laughs) So Margaret's was like the top academic hall. Yeah, very studious. It's where you went if you were docs. Yeah. Did I tell you um, how I picked Carrington? No. Because I I knew no one who was going to Otago. Like everyone. And well, like, because I went one year early. So like, I didn't know anything about university. My parents didn't go to university. Like, I just knew nothing. So Mm. the only thing that I had heard about any hall at Otago was that Carrington had the best food. Oh, yes. That that was the only thing I heard. And I was like, well, guess I'm going to Carrington. Um, Oh, would you have met Naveen at Carrington? I had, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I went to um biology camp with Naveen. Oh, cute. (laughs) Yeah. He's, he's... Just a real sweetheart. Oh god, he's, he's such a lovely one. Um, and yeah. Jenny Wong, who was yeah. in Melbourne. Um, she in Melbourne like, now? Uh, not permanently. She was in Melbourne for a for a med rotation. Um, oh. And like one of the days that she was awake because like junior doctors are made to work horrendous mm. hours. Yeah. Uh, dropped by the Royal Children's Hospital, so we oh hung out. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Oh, that's so cute. Oh, we should probably cut this out because no one knows these people. <laughs> but I'm. I'm so- <laughs> This is the content that he will come to our podcast for, Serena. It warms me up inside to like <laughs> hear about people that like you once hung out with. We um, there was like this uh noodle club in because they lived in the same like mini Carrington is made of like mini houses. Mm. Um, so they lived in the same house as I did, and like I would never be asleep, but they would also do this thing where like at two a.m. they would all go into the kitchen and make noodles. Yeah. 
And I would usually either already be in the lounge kitchen area yeah. or just, like, hanging around. So we just, like, hang out at 2 in the morning. Holy shit. We probably crossed paths in first year and just didn't know it. Probably. Because, like, I went in, I went swimming a bunch in first year, and so I'd drop by Carrington on my way back mm. um, and hang out with Naveen and just be like, how's Med? And he'd be like, first year health science sucks. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, you're yep. a sucker for doing it. <laughs> it does indeed suck. <laughs> yeah. We used to uh, watch Insomnia on C4, which ran from midnight to 6 a.m. Oh, my God. And that would just be on in the background and would, like, talk about deep shit. Yeah, I spent upwards of 12 hours. Like, our, our first few experiences were just so wildly different. I spent upwards of 12 hours of sleep most nights. <laughs> just because my iron levels were so low. Yeah, yeah, that'll it'll do that to you. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny to me. <laughs> oh, this is a good catch-up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, good chats, good chats. Yeah, good chats. <laughs> God, and, like, all of those people, like, doctors now, like, Carrington did really well with getting people into med. Oh, yeah, yeah. Lots of really, like, yeah, studious people, but, like, smart in in a very specific way. I didn't feel like there were a lot of extremely hardcore studiers, Mm. but it also wasn't, like, a party hard hardcore. It was was pretty chill. Yeah, and Um, it would have got, like, pretty intense in the run-up to exams. Oh, yeah, yeah, it always does. Arana did not. (laughs) (laughs) Party hall. Um, I re- do you remember the like rivalry thing between Carrington and Arana? And there were a whole bunch of like activities, mm. like com- competitive activities. And one there was one activity that was COD, and it was hosted yeah. in the Carrington dining room. Mm-hmm. Did you did you see that? Were you there? I did not. Oh um, my gosh, you missed so out. <laughs> the the floor I lived on dungeon. Mm. Sporty people. So I heard all about the Arana Carrington sports stuff and nothing about the nerd things. Oh my goodness. It was the best game of card I've seen in my life. (laughs) It was like 10 people aside or 12 people aside, right? Um, And, you know, battling it out. And then it went into like last two people standing. uh, One from Carrington, one from an Arana. And I remember one of them had maybe like two bullets left. And the other one just had a knife. Oh my god. And it was just like the most tense thing I've ever seen. And they were like running around the map being like, oh crap, where's this other person? And eventually like they they bumped into each other and like one guy starts firing and the other guy like goes in with the knife and the person with the knife won. And we're all like, (laughs) oh my god. (sighs) Nerd shit. I'm like I'm so excited hearing about it secondhand. Like oh, so literally, good. fucking nine years later, I'm like, oh my god, <laughs> the drama. It was so good. I <sighs> actually can't remember who won. Uh, I didn't care. I was just the, like, this is amazing. The guy with the knife won, which is what yeah. the important winner is. Yeah. God, oh, so good, so good. Uh. What are we talking I, about? <laughs> I, I would say that I miss Otago, except it started getting cold in Melbourne again recently, so I definitely don't. <laughs> it was like, Serena, it was like mm. 10 degrees the other morning, and I was so unhappy. I was like, uh, oh, oh, how yeah. dare it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever live, uh, like look back on living at Otago and thinking, how the hell did I survive? <laughs> Oh, yeah, no, I lived in a flat that got ice on the inside of his windows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. I survived because I got an electric blanket. Mm. Yeah, no, I have no idea how I didn't, like, develop asthma during my time and, like, living in those horrendous damp houses. God. Oh, it was so bad. Yeah. I, like, shit. I ate pretty well, except when I lived okay. in halls. So there's that. Uh-huh. Um, but, yeah, otherwise it's just kind of like, holy shit, I was so cold and damp, like, my entire time there. <laughs> so cold. I remember, like, you couldn't put the heater on because – the ceilings were so high and the rooms were so big mm. and the, the walls were so thin that it just, the heater would do nothing unless you were literally like straddling the heater, which sometimes yeah, no, I did. I had, I had a heater next to my bed mm. um, and I would turn it on when I needed to like, cause I used to do this when I played uh, piano because um, mm-hmm. I practiced piano in the early mornings in Tauranga and I'd get really cold hands cause I would do mm. swimming training before I did this, which, okay, Sophia. Um, and so I would, like, put my hands just on top of the heater. And so I had a little bar heater mm. that, like, when I was studying it or writing an essay, if I needed to, like, defrost my hands, I would turn on the heater and, like, put my hands on top of it. <laughs> um, and now I live in Melbourne, and every house I've lived in in Melbourne has had better insulation than everywhere I've lived in Dunedin, which is just slightly horrifying. And, oh, like, yeah, yeah. better heating throughout the part. It's like, it doesn't get cold here, not really. Like, I'll mm. whinge about it, but that's because I'm a tall baby, really. No, it's the same in Wellington, I found as well. There's, there's no insulation. <laughs> yeah, God, like, the longer I... Okay, here it mm. is. The longer I spend out of New Zealand, the more I get mad about, like, the lack of housing standards and, yep. like, enforcement yep. of those in New Zealand. Yeah. Like, uh-huh. we had the leaky homes thing happen, like, while we were in high school? Uh, yeah, it was, like, homes built in the 90s. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And so, like, that was, like, a big thing. And I was kind of like, oh, okay, like, some people have homes that were badly built and now those are finally getting fixed. All right, good. Mm. And now that I've lived in a bunch of houses in New Zealand that aren't, like, my parents' house, which was a, um, it's a concrete block house built mm. in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, so oh, it's, yes. It's gorgeous. My parents painted it pink and purple. Oh, my goodness. That's so cute. <sighs> I love them. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, But yeah, now that I've lived in like a bunch of houses in New Zealand, it's just kind of like, oh, these are all built terribly. And like, there's no requirement for landlords to make sure that someone's actually livable, really. Um, And there's like, there's been a bunch of cases of landlords in Wellington and Auckland who like have been taken to court and there's been relatively high publicity, but that hasn't actually resulted in any meaningful changes. Like the entire time we were at Otago, the students' union was like, we... You know, like, there's a tenancy tribunal at Otago um, that's supported mm. by the students' union, but they also wanted, like, improved controls over landlords and, like, the standards they needed to keep their houses to. Um, and, like, that's ongoing, right? Like, they're still having to fight for, like, livable houses for students. Mm. Um, yeah, I know, like, a handful of friends who uh, have been living overseas for the past, like, five years, mm. and... They miss home so much, and they want to come back, and they they would come back, but it's just our housing that's preventing them from coming back. Like, it's that bad. And I don't think people who live in New Zealand understand just how bad our housing is mm. until you've lived overseas. Um, it, Gosh, like, I was overseas for one year on my exchange, and while I was overseas, I was the maintenance manager of the building that I lived in. 
So as a maintenance manager, it was my duty to make sure that the house was habitable. And so, you know, I would have to do kind of these occasional inspections of, of the whole house just to make sure, you know, look out for fire hazards, make sure like things like heaters were working, um, making sure that it was it was comfortable and livable. And there were all these things that like I had to check on and I had to fix. And so the year after, I moved back to Otago, um, back to Dunedin, and I remember arriving at the flat at the church. First day I arrived, I had a quick look around, and I was like, this would not pass habitability. Not even close. Every single room has something very, very wrong with it. There's a gigantic hole in the wall. There's mold on the ceiling. This window doesn't close properly. And it was just appalling. Like, And I don't think I would have thought twice had I not lived overseas. Yeah. And no, known I don't. how it was supposed to be. <laughs> I remember that flat. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. It was a mess. Um, yeah, man. I've, been, <laughs> I've made a friend who invites me to house parties in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Um. And one of these house parties, like, happens, like, I think North Melbourne is probably the closest you get to that kind of stuff here. Mm. And I say that because I've been going to house parties at this place in North Melbourne where when you're climbing the stairs, you feel like you will die. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, that is the overwhelming emotion. You're like, these stairs are going to collapse and I yep. am going to die. Yeah. Didn't know um, how this was how I go, but all right then. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, that's, to me, that's, like, the f- perfect place to have house parties, right? Because <laughs> it's just, like yeah, you can fuck it up a bit and it will actually yeah. kind of be okay because you can be like, oh, it was here beforehand. No like, I don't cares. know what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. And, it, like, I love it because it makes me, like, really nostalgic for Dunedin, but also, like, <laughs> the idea of a house collapsing beneath me should not make me nostalgic for Dunedin, you know? <laughs> like, that shouldn't be, like, my my visceral sense memory <laughs> yeah. of the place I lived for four and a half years, you know? Yeah. Uh, people ask, people at work ask me, like, oh, what was it? like um being in Dunedin character building yeah it was character building yeah if people ask me I just say it was very cold and that's why I left yeah oh well, I mean if you can survive those conditions and um... character building so burnout <laughs> oh shit yeah that's what we're supposed to be talking about <laughs> well I mean like we both experienced a lot of burnout in Otago I'm sure I think like I don't know this is this is one of the things with Dunedin. Like, it was almost easier to kind of burn out and bounce back there mm. for probably two or three reasons. So, like, firstly, everyone else was miserable because it was cold and dark the entire time. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. But also, like, the fact that, you know, I think we both had really strong networks there mm. made that a lot easier. Like, yeah, yeah, like, I, I've had a rough, stressful time the last few weeks, and, like, the people who have been texting and calling haven't been in Melbourne for the most part. Like, they've been friends in Wellington, they've been friends who still live in Dunedin. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that makes the effect of being burnt out that much more um, pointy. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it also makes it much harder to bounce back when you're, like, physically isolated from your networks. Whereas in Dunedin, like, someone will fucking turn up with, like, a hundreds and thousands cookie pack like and just sort of help you throw it mm. because like we're all we're all kind of in the trenches together there oh yeah yeah it did feel like that at times like oh boy 
Like, we're all getting through this together. Everyone's miserable, but at least we're miserable together. Going across to Center City New World to just, like, stock up on snacks so I could write my honest thesis into the dark night. Yep. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's, um, this... I wrote my... I wrote the bulk of my honors thesis in a day. Mm, And by a day, I mean I got into the office at 9am and I was like, I'm sitting here and writing until I finish a first draft of everything. Yeah. And I left at 3am and I was like, cool. Yeah. (laughs) Killed it. (laughs) Yeah, I feel that. I did the same thing except that day was like the day before it was due, which was bad. Fuck, Serena. I know. I remember, like, after we we all handed in our theses, um, I came back and Lauren came up to me and she was like, God, I was really worried for you for a bit there. I wasn't sure if you were going to make it. <laughs> and I, I was, was worried like, for you when you had bronchitis. Like, Jesus. Oh, when was that? <laughs> no, like, literally over the last two months. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, that was, that was, that was bad. <laughs> I, I think maybe you're just a worrying friend to have, Serena. <laughs> I just, yeah, I just need to, like, treat my health a bit better. I, yeah, I need to follow my dad's advice. <laughs> and your advice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it, I, I think the bronchitis thing, I didn't really have any control over. It wasn't like I was working myself to, to yeah. death or anything. It was just it was just a particularly bad flu. Um, yeah. <laughs> Woo! Yeah. It was, um... No, I got a text from you that was like, I just coughed up blood. I think I'm going to be sick for a while. Oh, and then I didn't, yeah. And then I didn't wild. hear from you for a few days, and I was like, has Serena died? Oh, shit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I should have, yeah. No, that's well, fine. Well, I, I wasn't really, like, texting anyone. Um, like, I was You're... literally, I was basically dead. I was a zombie. I just, I, like, barely remember. I do remember the blood thing. I we should cut this out because it's disgusting. <laughs> but that was wild. No, I had a bunch of friends over on I say a bunch, everyone cancelled on Sunday. Like three friends turned up. Um oh, that's but then they good. all had swapped stories about projectile vomiting. <laughs> I was like, Yep. These are the kinds of friends I make. <laughs> Great. It's so forceful. I've never done it. Um and, like, everyone everyone who was telling these stories, all three of them, were like, I did not believe it could happen until it happened to me. And so, like, I very much believe that projectile vomiting is a thing. It's just never happened to me. I'm not sure if it's happened to me. I, I remember, like, vomiting as a kid a lot, but I don't think that was projectile. I have seen projectile vomiting. And that's a sight to behold. It's uh, some force. Sorry, yeah. burnout. Oh, I can't. I mean, like, <laughs> burnout's just not a very sexy topic to talk about. It's no. just like everyone experiences it, and the the cure for it is not like exciting. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's it's not like you're going to, you know, it's not like you're being handed a five step process. Like you're gonna bake a cookie and then at the end of it you'll have like a like a you have you would have destroyed burnout and then that's it that's all you need to do like it's it's a continuous thing that you kind of have to continually unlearn and reprogram your brain and work at and it's it's not sexy 
Well, it's because you're pushing back against, like, all of society. And I think, like, also... um, Like, we've had a lot of conversation this episode about, like, value and productivity and all of that. And I would like to ask the discerning listener to think of all of our, like, tangents as us, like, rebelling against capitalism. (laughs) Um, Because, like, really, that's what we're doing, right? Like, we refuse to create value for you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Take that, society. (laughs) The worth of this podcast is not linked to how productive this podcast is. (laughs) Jesus. Um, But yeah, like, I mean, I I will pull us back to the topic sometimes because, like, (laughs) I think we probably both have interesting things to say on it, but, like, fundamentally... The act of us, like, swabbing yarns about halls and flats in Otago is, yeah, it's, it's rebelling against late-stage late capitalism. Like, what can I tell you? Well, there was, I mean, a big part of what pulled me out of the whole burnout spiral and a big part of what really helped me rediscover the things I liked again was um, going back and, like, doing an edit of um, of one of our recent episodes. And I was listening to us chat and I was like, this is great. You know? And it's, I mean, this is great not as in, like, wow, this is really great content and material for people to listen to. No, like, I, this is great. I'm having a deep, interesting chat with my friend. And I'm just having a great time. You know what I mean? Like, to be in the moment and to, to enjoy something for what it is. And, like, this podcast was a huge reminder to me about what it was like to just enjoy something just for the intrinsic value of of the thing rather than focusing on oh like how are people going to receive this what's the outcome what kind of like value are we adding to the like fuck that yeah, this is just a thing that we do for fun <laughs> we don't make this for you listeners <laughs> <laughs> um no like I mean, that's, yeah. well that's something i really love about like the act of editing is i get the opportunity to go back and um usually because I have to, like, edit out how loudly I laugh, uh, <laughs> really pour over, like, your fantastic jokes, Serena. <laughs> like, um, a lot of the time you will say something incredibly funny during an episode. I would just be, like, lis- re-listening to that, like, 20 seconds of time a number of times to try and, like, make sure it's audible over my fucking loud-ass laughs. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Well, I mean, something for the listeners is like here. here I put nah, it to you. Fuck <laughs> Sorry, I put yes, it to you. On. I put it to you, dear listener. Go out there and rediscover something that you once loved doing. We all have that. Like we all have that thing. That thing that lights up our eyes and that that thing that just takes us over with excitement and joy when we talk about it. Um, that thing that we get lost in when we do. And it it could be literally anything. It could be it could be making something sure, but it also could be reading, like just I don't know, reading something. It could be fucking playing soccer, like playing a game, hanging out with friends. Sometimes like you feel flow. You you feel flow when you're in conversation with friends as well. Like Remember the stuff that you really enjoyed doing and rediscover that joy and focus on 
the intrinsic joy that comes with the doing, the the act of just being in the moment, and all that other shit that society tells you to care about, just fuck that. Like, forget about it. You don't care. Like, remind yourself that you don't actually care about it, because we don't. Like, none of us actually care. We've been trained to care. We've been told that we have to care, but we don't actually care. So yeah, go and, like, fucking dance. Dance in the streets, everyone. Do what you love. Flash mobs in 2019. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, look, thanks for listening to Things of Interest. Like, we don't do this for you, but we appreciate that you listen anyway. We really do appreciate it. It amazes me that people listen to this. It's really nice. We like having listeners. If you want to get in touch with us and tell us what you liked and what this means to you and all of that stuff we're on facebook at things of interest we're on twitter at casting interest and we're on gmail at casting interest at gmail.com we're also on a number of podcast apps now did we end up on spotify serena we are on spotify we are Woo. on stitcher we are on TuneIn. we might be getting on iHeartRadio radio soon i saw that email i'm very mm. excited um <laughs> so we're we're out there we're everywhere and whatever your podcast listening device of choice please Go leave us some stars, leave us a review, and also tell us your feelings there. Ooh, tell a friend. Tell a friend while having a conversation with them in which you hit flow. Heck yeah. And look, genuinely, like, I've made a lot of cracks about, like, listeners. Um, (laughs) But genuinely, like, go out there and do something that you like. Not because there is value in it, because, like the only value that is meaningful are things that hold value to you. Okay? So, really go out there and live your best lives. I've been Sophia Fritz. And I'm Serena Chen. And as always, stay interesting. <laughs>